I just feel that we as storytellers have a responsibility to have a reason to enter the darkness. It must be something we can learn from. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a nurse suspects her colleague is responsible for a series of mysterious patient deaths in director Tobias Lindholm's thriller, The Good Nurse. Based on true events, the film tells the story of a nurse who risks her own life to uncover the truth. In addition to The Good Nurse, Lindholm's other directorial credits include the feature films A Hijacking, and A War, the documentary Venice 70, Future Reloaded, the miniseries The Investigation, and episodes of the series Mindhunter. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Lindholm spoke with director Scott Cooper about filming The Good Nurse. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. I love Tobias's films. Um, for those of you who, this one in particular, which we'll get to, but for those of you who uh, aren't familiar with with his Danish work, he's really quite prolific. He's written quite a number of uh, very good uh, TV shows, Investigation, which maybe was last year, Borgen, of course, some great films, uh, Hijacking a War. But he's also co-written with uh, Thomas um, Vinterberg, um, Another Round, which I hope that you saw, which was beautiful. And then uh, one of my personal favorites, A Hunt, which is a very uplifting film like uh, <laughs> The Good Nurse. But I love this film. It's, it's really chilling. It's obviously gripping and intense. Um, but this is your first American feature and one that you didn't write. And you're such a prolific writer. What was the genesis of the project? And then how, how was it to direct something that you didn't write? Well, I, I, 10 years ago, I made a decision to never make an American film. I, I was like, I'd seen Scandinavian colleagues get lost in an American studio system that is very far away from how we make, make films at home in size. And, you know, there's government support that, that keeps Scandinavian cinema alive. Um, so there's a lot of uh, freedom in that, that, that seems to not be, at least I saw colleagues that, that, that didn't, weren't able to to transfer that into to this, uh, but then I I was sent the screenplay uh, the good news, um, a first draft very early from from Christy, um, who, who who also did, wrote 1917. Correct, yeah. and and this was before she wrote 1917. I think this was her first paid job, um, just out of. When was that? What year was that? So this is a I think seven years ago, eight years ago oh, that wow. I read it the first time, and I just you know reading it I realized that it was a film about. There was the stepping stones to, to to a film that would be a serial killer film, but that reminded me of my mom, a movie about, you know, a hero, heroic single mom, like my mom, who was a social worker in Denmark and, and, you know, went out there and and raised me and my brother without a father around and still was able to help people. And, and to be able to do a film with this topic and still celebrate such an unsung hero was seemed seemed too, too good to be true. So, so I decided to, to get on board. And how much did the script change from that draft to this? Well, it changed a lot because, you know, Christy had done a great job of choosing the scenes, but there was still 
I realized that we needed to get rid of all the scenes that would be references to other serial killer movies. Yeah. Um, and, and we all know these scenes that, you know, it's like in, in the basement where the serial killer lives and where he is, you know, cruel towards animals and stuff where you will like study his, his darkness. Um, and, and what I felt was that the, the, the real story was Amy's story. And then we, we, we could not know more about him than Amy knew because as soon as we knew more than her, she seemed naive. And I didn't want that. We needed her to be a hero that would take us through. So, so we got rid of all those. So, at, at that point, there was not that many scenes left. You stripped it of all the cliches, essentially. Got got rid of them, and then we started to talk to nurses about, you know, what would those scenes be? Where would it happen? How could it be at the ICU? Um, and even on set, I, there was one scene where we it was late night, and there was one scene where Jessica was, and she was great in it, but she was printing out these um, reports from the Pixis machine that would be evidence against him. And she did it, which seemed kind of naive and stupid, that suddenly she did it while he was there. So the whole scene was about, oh, will he see that she's doing it? And, you know, like like there was like uh, um, the suspense thing. Was she in danger now? And it just felt wrong when we shot it. So we did one take and then I asked Jessica to... Felt like a movie. Yeah, it was like, ah, no, let's just, we're not going to, this will never make the movie, so let's yeah, go home yeah. now. And they were like in, in shock and the producers didn't necessarily like it. But but nevertheless, it didn't feel honest. It felt like a trick we were playing instead of being honest towards sure. the, Amy. And so so really, in terms of directing somebody else's work compared to something that you have, have birthed, no difference. The, the, I think it was a luxury. In I terms had of Christine. passion or in terms of process, in terms of being involved? Because as a writer, did you rewrite with her specifically, do it by yourself? I, I did, did do some, like I, I direct his pass on it, but 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 mainly I just had the luxury of talking to Christy about it. Yeah. And then I would, the biggest luxury was that I got a whole month of rehearsal with the actors. So we would go through- A month. A month. And we would go like, and it was in COVID, so we, so we just spent a month in basically in my apartment in, in, in Tribeca and in, in the kitchen, going through the scenes again and again and again and finding the truth of them. Mm. We never went 100% with the acting, but we always tried to, to figure out how to, um, to make the scenes feel grounded in reality. And, and, and to be able to do that and then call Christy and give her the notes and have her uh, rewrite it was a big luxury. And did you bring in Amy? The actual Amy to come in and was she a consultant? Did she look at the scripts? Were you taking any dramatic license that that she felt okay with? Didn't feel okay with? Yo, so Amy was was part of it. The first time when I had written um, uh, when I when I read Christie's first draft, I had to meet with Amy right away because it almost felt too good to be true. That you know, in the sense that she had used their friendship and reminded him of his own humanity, and then he would confess. Um, so I, I needed to get that confirmed, but um, but it was true, um, and and that's when when I really got got on board. But she was she was part of it the whole way through. I would any casting suggestions and everything I would run by her and you know have respect that it was her story we told. There was one thing that surprised me in the in the first draft that I written. She only had one daughter, so I always thought that she only had one child. Like I don't know why there was no not both of them. Then I realized that you know two weeks before we started shooting that there were two daughters. So we added another daughter and that created a whole nice. series of problems because it's, it's difficult to shoot with kids. Um, but yeah. Well, what's interesting about your film, and we talked about 
stripping the cliches. But in America, I don't know about in, in Denmark, but in America, Americans are obsessed with not only true crime, but with serial killer films. Um, I think maybe on Netflix, the number one show is Jeffrey Dahmer, isn't it? Right. But here, I applaud you for focusing on the heroes and not really the killers. And, and there are some directors who, who make violent films, but you really eschewed that violence, which I, I applaud you for, I have to say, because it, was, uh, uh, it feels like it's, it was unnecessary. I, I said to, uh, to be outside, I said, I, I, I would think that the audience would want to know why did Charles do what he did? And I'll get to that later, but I love that you didn't really provide the audience with the answers of his childhood and, mm-hmm. and, and his maltreatment of animals and his dad beating him or all the sort of things that we see in American serial killer films. But the, the whole thing with this true crime is like a label, like breaking news, and then we all click on it. Like oh, it, it seems yeah. like right now we put we put true crime on it, and then then we can then we can sell it. And and you know I, I have no problem with being true crime if Truman Capote was true crime when he did In Cold Blood. You know, but there's there's, there's so many versions of this. Yeah. I just feel that we as storytellers have a responsibility to have a reason to enter the darkness. It must be something we can learn from. Um, in that case, it was a clear comment on, on 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 social layers in American society. In this case, it's about inspiring and reminding us of the responsibility we have as individuals in these systems that we build. In this case, the the American healthcare system. But nevertheless, if true crime is just fascination with violence and crime, then I'm not sure that we should tell those stories. But but I'm but I'm pretty sure that if there is things to learn from it, either from a human perspective or from any perspective, then clearly we could. Well, because this film is an indictment of the American healthcare system, which is interesting coming from somebody who has uh, free and universal healthcare uh, in Denmark. And here you, you're indicting the American healthcare system, but also showing how this is really about how profits come before patients. And I was watching that with Generally in my house, we have what I call, not that this is one of them, but as my daughters were growing up, inappropriate movie night with the Coopers. <laughs> and this was one in which I was with my younger daughters talking about the American health care system because she's not really aware of it. And of course, being Danish, you come here and you see that, that it is about profits and really how uh, Kim Dickens, is that right? Mm-hmm. Who was really quite wonderful in, in the film and... and this notion that uh, how inhumane it is. On top of the fact that you have someone who is a nurse who is also ill and trying to find a work-life balance. So it's, in stripping all of the cliches, it's just my long-winded way of saying I think it's really a brilliant way into this story. Well, thank you. And, and, And it is, I think I'm able to see it from a different perspective at least but but I don't even think that it's just a critique of the American healthcare system I think it's a critique overall of systems where we lean into them and by building these systems we also find a place where we could just you know put our responsibility and say well it's up to the system I don't really have to 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 deal with this the big surprise was that it took a struggling single mom ICU night nurse who was struggling with her own heart disease to stop this guy you know, and I and I think that was the big question for me was never why did Charlie do it. It was always why didn't they stop him sooner? How can that be allowed? How well, can that happen? Well, you have that wonderful line. I did it because they didn't stop me. 
They didn't stop him. Which is chilling. And, um, and true, that was how it could continue. He wasn't Hannibal Lecter. He wasn't like a brilliant, uh, you know, a, 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 a genius in his field. He did a pretty simple thing, but he was allowed to continue doing it because somebody was protecting their profit. Well, for sure. At what point did you say, I would love to have Jessica Chastain play Amy and as well have Eddie play Charles? So Zero Dark Thirty was the first film where I, you know, saw 3 p.m. show and then went in for the 5.30 uh, show yeah, right after because man. she was amazing in that. I was totally mesmerized by the film, but especially by her performance in it. So it was like I knew that if I was ever going to make something, I would try to reach out. And luckily, we we, 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 we managed to, to, to find her. And um, I had a conversation with her about it, and she decided to do it. And <clears throat> around... Any this, hesitancy or would she all in? She was all in when 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 we when we, when she realized that it was not a story about violence beating violence, but it yeah. was a story about th- this very it's humane a hero's journey. Exactly, yeah. and 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 she could see herself self doing that if we if we kept it honest and we talked a lot about you know how we wanted to shoot it and and that I was I was not there to prove that I was right or the screenplay was right, but we were there to find the truth in the scenes every day. Um, and I think that she felt I, they both both her and Eddie. I talk about this like it was nice to go back and make a small intimate film and for me it was like well I don't think it's a small intimate film it's the biggest thing I've ever done you know <laughs> I normally make films about nine friends in, in Copenhagen exactly. right and suddenly yeah. I have 300 people around all the time but you cast Jessica first I cast Jessica first because she was the main so I needed to find somebody yeah. that we could but but then as you know you're giving from studios you're giving these 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 lists oh, yeah. um, of, of names that can finance and and it's a very boring conversation. You don't so have to tell me. So so we would we would um, instead we would throw those lists away, and then Scott Franklin, the producer, and I would just have conversations about movies that had moved us. Mm-hmm. And he had just rewatched a theory of everything with his oldest son. Oh, so wow. he brought yeah. that, and as soon as he said Edward Main, I was like, "That's perfect." Yeah. Because we really need a nice choice. guy who who's lovable and sweet. Yeah for 85% of the time, and then we can reveal, you know, the beast. You know, it's interesting, did, in, in watching the film, is this the first time they've worked together? Yeah. Because in watching moments where you have both of them in the frame, I was struck by how similar they look to one oh. another. They could be siblings. Did that come into your thinking at all in terms of their coloring and their facial structure? So, so we did actually uh, work with that at, at points where um, they don't have, they're, they're not equally pale in real life but we would go with that oh, really? yeah. to, 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 to make sure that, that everybody would emotionally connect with the idea that they belong together that they're from the same Sure. Um, because it was all about you know making good reasons for the friendship um, so, 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 so we did but, but it, it was fun once in a while and then when, when Christy who's also a, a, a wonderful ginger was on um, <laughs> was on set then we had three people that looked completely alike oh <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, one of the most haunting things about the film is how closely he hews to the family and with the children, especially the scene where he comes back, where Jessica comes back and, and he's already there and, and he's ingratiated himself with the school play and, and you, just, you just feel like, well, these people walk amongst us. I mean, his physicality in the part is, uh, I hadn't quite seen that from Eddie in terms of his kind of stoop nature Certainly his accent work is terrific. Um, you said that you rehearsed for a month. If there's one scene that I wouldn't think that you rehearsed, I would think it would have been, and I could be, be wrong, but it seemed like it was unrehearsed, was the interrogation scene. 
and you're totally right. There was two scenes we didn't rehearse that we kept. You know, I I wanted to have like some untouched material there, um, and that was the I can't scene that we that we saw where where he goes where he unleashes the beast, yeah. and then the scene where Jessica gets him to confess at the end. I yeah, felt that, if, that that's a beautiful scene. I agree, and and they did like a wonderful job. But so what we actually did was we we, we rehearsed everything. Um, I love that and, you handcuffed him too, and he didn't know. So when when we went in and. I all I we had. I mean, you didn't. It wasn't scripted that he was handcuffed. No, no. it was. It was right. Because why would he have been right? Well, I, I talked to a detective that would be with me on set to just like guide me, and he 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 gave me different suggestions on how I could do it. There's like different versions of and, and different techniques. Um, and and Eddie knew that he was going to be in this very small room. Like I didn't have any. It wasn't a fly set. Like we were going to remove the wall to place a camera. So I just. You know, piled in. You didn't, you didn't. You didn't have a flyaway wall. No, not at all. It was really? just we found. It was in the basement of the ho- of the hotel where the crew lived, and I found this room. It was perfect. So we, so we just, you know, decided that that was a prison cell, and then we would have like you know, camera and crew and everybody in there, and then Eddie. Um, but I still felt that you know that he would if he would move too much around, there would be too much movement in the frame, yeah. and I kind of needed to be condensed, um, and then. Then I, I I handcuffed him to the table without him knowing. So he came in and he had prepared stuff. The only thing we had done. Had he prepared to move around in the frame? I I think so. Mm-hmm. I at least I know that he had prepared stuff. We had looked at Francis Bacon's The Screaming Pope oh, yeah. um, together. Like that was like like an idea of what we were looking for. But then I felt that I I was afraid that Eddie would get up and it would be like a physical confrontation with the police. So when he came in. Um, I handcuffed him to the table, and he looked at me. And in the confusion, he he would he would you know knock the, the handcuff towards the table, like, and you, you you would hear it. And then he looked up and he smiled, and I was like, okay, something's gonna happen now. So I went to the monitor, and then he just went for it. And ninety percent of what's in the film now was from that first that take, first take, yeah, where he just right. went. And then we did that for eleven hours. And even though we wasn't shooting in his direction, he would still go as crazy to serve Namdi and Noah when we were doing their 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 images. So that was a pretty intense day. Wow. And how was in terms of their process, Eddie and Jessica's similar? Um, because they both are really good listeners, which is you know one of the hallmarks of great screen acting, and and both very emotionally truthful. What we basically spend most time talking about is the power of the pause. The idea that it's the time when we don't speak that really makes everything Always. alive. Um, and so they allowed themselves to enter that space. Often you get a little impatient and you just want to go for your line because there's like a, there's a line producer who reminds you there's lunch in a minute. Scott and you have to, say, you know. So 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 they we we allowed ourselves to to not think about that and just do these takes that were, you know, half an hour, um, which was fine. We didn't need to speed it up. I can always do it in edit, but I need them to find a way in. And I think they were very similar. I would, you know, Eddie is very physical in his approach. Mm-hmm. He needs to find like a, 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 a way to be physically the part. And, and, and that's what made him so perfect for this. Charles Graber, who wrote the book, described Charlie Cullen as a question mark. And I think Eddie took that very literally, and he find, found a way to like shape his body so he'd look like a question mark. And the first oh, shot we see of the film, the opening, when we zoom in, yeah, that was done on the that. first day. Um, and that's where I saw the question mark for the first time, and I was like, oh my God, 
it's perfect. Well, I love that opening scene, that slow zoom as, you're, as we're just creeping in. Generally, people would cover the patients trying to be resuscitated, and it would feel much more like an action picture. But you understand at that moment, this is the kind of film this is going to be. And did the actors realize you were only going to do this in that, that master with slow zoom, or did they think that you were going to come in and cover all of that? I did a little coverage. Um, but oh, you did? Because I don't recall that you ever used it, did no, you? No, never. We never used right. it. Okay. Um, we had one <laughs> shot where, where the alarm would go off and then you would be up a hallway and you would see Eddie walk towards the camera. Then he would go in the door and then that whole thing happens and then we did a little coverage inside. But when we shot it the first day and we, we went... That was, this was day one? That was day one. Oh, wow. When we did for the Zoom... It reminded me of the opening of the verdict, where we zoom slowly in on Paul oh, yeah. Newman by the pink, pink, pinball machine, and there's a, there's a there's a window and there's like a, a undefined garden or a tree outside, and it's basically just zooming in on this guy and realizing, okay, this film is going to be about this man, mm. and he's clearly caught in some sort of stillness. He's not moving anywhere. He's just standing there wasting time. What's going on? And all the questions that we invited was invited to have. Yeah. watching that it reminded me so the first time we did the zoom it was one and a half minute and then i asked um jody uh, lee lives the dp to slow it down so we would i, I think I, I asked him to do it so it was longer than three minutes so that we could actually use it as a title sequence mm. as they do in the verdict where you know then it's you know a movie by and starring this and starring that and it's slowly like it was perfect because it gave us the opportunity to, to prepare the audience this is not going to go fast. This is not going to be action. Yeah. So lean back, you know, and, and, and be, be prepared Which to be bored. Which is what audiences <laughs> love, right? Uh, always, not always, <laughs> but you know, I love maybe it. in Denmark, so do I. <laughs> yes. Um, was that the Sony Venice? No. It was. It was. Yes, yeah. sir. How did you like that? I liked it a lot, but we, 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 we pushed it. And once in a while, a little too far, we would almost, you know, they, they, they said that we, did, that we never put light but darkness on, on set, yeah. it was extremely dark there. And we, of course, did that to make digital material react to the darkness and then we could push it afterwards. Um, so so it, was, it was a challenge. I've, no, I've shot on, on both Red and, 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 and Ari before, but I never worked with Sony. <clears throat> but as soon as I understood what Jody was doing and how it worked, I really started to appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, I've, I've used that camera and liked it quite a bit. Uh, very controlled palette. What was your discussion with your production designer and also your DP in terms of um, the range of colors, which which were minimal but really effective? In fact, it's I haven't spent, thankfully, much time in a hospital, but I thought, wow, if I did, this would actually kind of be a cool hospital because really well-designed. I agree. So we, we we were supposed to shoot in a real hospital and then COVID came and they needed the space to do more serious things than making films. <laughs> yes. So we so we ended up uh, building our own ICU um, out in, in, in the old Fuji factory, actually, in, in Connecticut. Um, and normally in, in the rest of the films that I've done in, in Denmark, we've used a handheld camera, which is great for the illusion that things is happening as we film them. So you're like, sure. oh, a phone is ringing. Then you point at the phone, never before. Yeah. Um, but in this case, it was a true story. So we couldn't really live with that illusion. It wasn't something we could keep alive. So instead, we decided to to use the say that the frame is just a window into an already existing reality. So let's just make sure that all rooms and everything in the hospital is kept alive. So I had patients in all rooms at any time. 
and I had real not doctors and real nurses working there. Mm. So no matter where we would point the camera and place it, there would be always something yeah. live in the in the depth. So we didn't need colors. We didn't need sensational uh, lighting or anything. It was just enough that that we kept it alive, or at least that was the idea. I know Jessica is incredibly meticulous in preparation, but it it really seemed to me in in those scenes where she was really acting as a nurse that she could have done this as though she spent time with a nurse, as though she followed one. I mean, did she? Because it was really, really uh, remarkable how authentic her performance is. So, so we sent both Eddie and, and, and Jessica to, um, to nursing school. Um, oh, really? Yeah, and again, suddenly COVID happened, so we couldn't do So we hired a couple of nurses to come out and, and teach them. So we built a little school uh, in, the, in the Fuji factory, and they would come every morning and take notes, and Joe Nurse would take them through the history of nursing, but also like really precise stuff. And it seemed like second nature to me. Um, and I would say, and, and, and I know Eddie says the same, but Jessica is a really good nurse. I'm not sure that Eddie is the one I would turn to if I was in trouble, but, but Jessica just went for it. And she was like, you know, a typical American, just, yeah, I can do this. And bang, she could. She was great. Well, you know, you, you look at Jessica's performances in Tammy Faye, which is, you know, a much more technical performance and and more overt, really, really wonderfully done. And then you look at her in this and it's so lived in and so authentic and you never question it. Even the small moments of interacting with her children, um, uh, her the nanny, um, the moments where we understand how ill she is and she's hiding behind the, the curtain, which are you know really touching and kind of tragic moments. I've never felt or appreciated nurses more. I mean, I always have, but certainly you see this and you think of just how critical they are to uh, a hospital survival and our survival. But the way she she portrayed that, was, there's not a false moment once. I mean, I would I would think, I mean, she's great in Zero Dark, she's great in Tammy Faye, but this is, I think, one of her best performances. Well, I, I think so too. Because, I mean, because it's so, but because it's uh, so restrained. I agree, it and it's be. so hard. And, you know, I think... I realized in the rehearsal how hard it would be physically to to play um, this heart disease because how do you not overplay that? How do you not make it too much? But she had this wonderful idea. She asked me to give her an earwig, a small speaker that we would put in her ear, and then she asked me to control her heartbeat. So we would have the recording of a heartbeat, and then I could increase the speed and the volume. So whenever in conversations with Eddie or whatever happened, Suddenly, without her knowing, I would turn up like, and then that, and then she could hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she would, then she would have to try to hide it yeah. from everybody, and that made it so truthful. And that was all her finding, yeah, those finding are very a way. Painful into. moments to see her have to go through that, and then to go home, and then have to have worked there for a year to get her health insurance. I mean, As you know, in Denmark, that would never be an issue. No, I mean it's a it's, it is an indictment of our healthcare system, and, and I think you. You did it beautifully. So the diner scene. Oh, yes. Uh, that's a really great scene, filled with tension. What was your intent um, in terms of shooting it? Um, because there isn't a lot of coverage, which is great, and not a lot of movement with the camera, so you're really locked in with the performers. Um, so I, I did mean, you rehearse that? We rehearsed it. We said the words. But and they did not agree on the scene, and I, you know, said, who, who, "Well, who didn't agree?" Eddie and Jessica, they had different approaches, which they should. And I said, "Well, it, you know, it's movie making; it's not democracy. You don't have to agree. We can just, you know, you can come in with your motivation and intention, and we can shoot mm -hmm. it." 
um, it's not about agreeing. It was about being honest and, and like finding a way in, in there. And I don't think that Eddie work in coincidence. He's extremely controlled. Yeah. So I think he had placed a fork on the table so that he knew then would Jessica would reach out, he could, which makes that mm -hmm. small violent reaction from him extremely powerful. Um, but the reason we picked that diner was, you know, I, I love Clute. Um, One of my favorites. And in Jane Fonda's living room, there's a lamp, there's a flower that is like uh, with black lines, but it's, it's, and when we came into the diner, that was the exact lamp that was over all the tables. So we were like, let's shoot here just because of that. Um, it felt like a crazy coincidence. But when we found it, I remembered, you know, I learned a lot about diner scenes from 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 David Fincher. I, I worked for him on, on Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's a master of diner scenes. And I think he's done the best In one. Way? Hmm? In what way? Well, just to understand, you know, the so a, a, a diner scene is a, because, and, and European restaurants are very different. But the diner have the booth, so you're kind of in your own little space. Mm -hmm. So there's something that feel like you can have a private conversation in a public space. Yeah. But it still have the, the the obstacles from reality. A waiter will come by at a point. There will be other people. Um, you, you Then there's water. Then the food arrives. So you will be interrupted all the time by these circumstances around you. Other customers, noise from the background all these things that, that is interesting to play with. And in this case, um, I did one thing. I changed the menus so we made them very big instead of like small menus, just so that they had something that felt a little awkward to move yeah. around, which would destroy the, 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 you know, the calmness of the scene. The, yeah, I've been to a couple of those restaurants where they have so many choices and you just look at it and you think, oh, I'll just have eggs. Exactly. And then I showed, I showed my son, who was 12 at the time, I showed him a rough cut of the scene. And, um, and I said, so what do you think? And he, he, he said, it's interesting that she just gets the same as him. Yeah. She says, I want the same. Yeah. And then I said, so why do you think that is? And he says, she's not there to eat. And, I, and you know, I just felt that was so clever and very precise. She's not there to eat. She's there to talk to this guy and try to confront him. So Get out of my way with the cheeseburger. Yeah, I'm going to have the same. I need to confront this guy. But then there was the whole straw thing that that became a theme between me and Eddie because the first time when we introduce him as he is approaching uh, the, the the patient, Anna Martinez, mm. he brings water to her and she will drink from a straw. And then I asked Eddie to use that idea of a straw when he came into the diner. So when he takes the iced tea and he drinks from the straw, he drinks in the same way as he remembers Anna Martinez. Oh, that's interesting. So that we would connect the two moments yeah. when he's still innocent and still just a friend. Um, and that's, that's the gift from, uh, from a diner. Um, but the idea was that he was there to just pretend like nothing happened. And then Jody and I, the, the DP, um, we would go closer and closer in the scene into the, into the faces. And then at the end, we would create this small square where we would have Eddie's face. And I wanted to do that to just to, to capture him, like, like make, make a real claustrophobic feeling of having him framed. And then instead of playing by the rules that I had set up, Eddie would lean away and then hide behind the, 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 the chair. Yeah. So suddenly he would disappear out. Oh, and in nice. edit, I realized it's amazing in, in, because then we could just look at him. Then he goes out and we're like, 
what's going to happen now? And then he came back into the frame and he has changed. And and that was like Eddie using. Fantastic. He's the only actor I've ever worked with that I allow to go to the monitor and watch all the replay he wants because he really knows how to use it and not take it in emotionally. Oh, but there's great. a technical yeah. way for him to to look at himself. But it, it's a dangerous thing to do, but he, he can manage. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> but uh, a beautiful film and, and really a film about uh, this notion that violence is no match for compassion and humanity. And you got to step up. Beautiful work, man. Thank you so much. Congrats. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 